Hi everyone, this is Thomas Horson from Three Hair Court and welcome to Three Hair Court Sports Law Team's second podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Julia Lois, a barrister at Three Hair Court. Uh, and in this episode, Julia is going to be looking at what sports bodies, clubs and individuals are facing and doing in respect of government guidelines for the returning of sporting events and for fans' attendance at sporting events. And while Julia, there's been quite a lot going on, hasn't there? There has, Tom, yeah. And today, um, what I'd like to look at is the the impact of the rise in COVID cases and two pieces of new national guidance, which I'm sure um, listeners will be well aware have come into force over the past couple of weeks. So the first being um, from the 14th of September, we had the health protection, brackets, coronavirus restrictions, brackets number two, brackets England, brackets amendment, brackets number four regulations 2020. I'll try not to use the titles too much. Um, <laughs> and of course, those introduced the, the rule of six as law so that people may not meet up indoors or outdoors in general terms in groups of larger than six. And then secondly, about a week later, from the 25th of September, we had the health protection and I'll shorten it number five regulations 2020, which extended that rule of six to some sports activities. And what I'd like to do today is have a look at what those regulations, as well as the, the changing landscape generally in the rise in cases, means for sports activities in three areas. Um, the first being the, the return of fans or not to organise sports. Uh, the second being what are those restrictions which have come in, particularly on amateur team sports. And thirdly, what's the impact on mass participation events and, and getting back up and running with those kinds of events. Um, so the first one uh, we'll look at is the return of fans to, to stage your professional sports in England. And again, as um, listeners are aware, I'm sure, elite sports resumed in England in, in mid-June, with the vast majority of those being played behind entirely closed doors really over the summer. So we had the Premier League returning in mid-June and the FA Cup final at the beginning of August. We had the men's England cricket tests, which were played against the West Indies, Ireland, Pakistan and Australia, and England women's cricket being played against the West Indies. Uh, Formula One at Silverstone in August and in respect of all of those as I said broadly that there were no fans at all and I think it's fair to say that there have been a number of sort of false starts really in terms of getting fans back into the stadia. It was always the intention from the return in June to move through the summer with a sort of progression of pilot events having a small number of fans and, and hopefully getting back to, to fans in events at some scale um, by October. And when, as I say, there have been a number of false starts and I think that really started at the end of July when the government had to postpone allowing fans at pilot events after the first spike in cases. So that particularly affected the World Snooker Championship at the Crucible who had admitted fans on the opening day they were allowed to stay on for that day, but then for the rest of the week, it was held behind closed doors, um, apart from, from a limited number of 300 fans at the final. Um, spectators weren't permitted at county cricket matches as, as they'd planned to. And there had been plans to allow 4,000 spectators at Goodwood, which were canceled at short notice after another spike. 
Um, as I've said, that the, the plan really was for there to be a number of pilot events and the hope that by the beginning of October, there would be fans back in stadia at a capacity of around 25 to 35%. And of course, that would have tied in reasonably well with the, the beginning of the 2020 and 2021 um, season for England football, that having started a couple of weeks ago now. And of course, as, as I'll go on to discuss, there are a huge range of reasons why fans, athletes and clubs are absolutely desperate for the return of fans um, to the stadium. And it's also fair to say that there were a number of successful pilot events which were held in August and early September across football, rugby union, cricket and snooker. But again, going back to that false start uh, premise, there's been disappointment for fans as well. So the St. Leisure Horse Racing Festival in mid-September had 2,500 spectators on the first day. And then again, um, similar to the snooker, we're told to stop spectators attending thereafter. So I think that if ever there was a time when the, the term moving goalposts is, is appropriate, this is certainly it because it's just changing all the time, really. You've got to get at least one sports joke in there, haven't you? No, exactly. It was a pretty opposite pun, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so by, by mid-September um, the 14th, as I say, when the rule of six was introduced with the, the number four uh, regulations, um, it was clarified that, that fans returning to the stage year, because they have been transformed into COVID secure environments and that was planned in accordance with government guidance and of course strict protocols, that technically that return would be compatible with the rule of six. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean that those plans are actually going ahead. So um, there had been plans. The hope was that they could move from stage four, um, which was return of cross-border competition with no spectators, to stage five, which was the return to competition, safe return of spectators, of course, in a socially distanced way. And there was uh, the pilot weekend on the 18th and 19th of September, where eight pilot fixtures allowed the return of a thousand fans each to um, a number of EFL fixtures. But then very shortly after, so about a week after the introduction of that rule of six, on the 22nd of September, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport held a meeting with sports governing bodies, including football, rugby, cricket, Formula One and horse racing in which the DCMS announced the postponement of pilot events programme and told the governing bodies essentially to prepare for no spectators throughout winter. And that was in line with moving the UK generally from the COVID-19 alert level up to four, which means that transmission is high or rising exponentially. And of course, just a few days later, further restrictions were also brought in um, for hospitality businesses and indoor sports, which um, I'll talk about in a little bit. That, that announcement there of um, not going ahead with those pilot schemes in the EFL is, and with football and other sports generally, you know, the, the reaction to that was pretty great. I know a lot of the EFL clubs, particularly in Leagues 1 and League 2, um, and even in, in the Championship to a certain extent as well, were devastated because they are missing out on so much revenue by fans mm. not being able to attend even in reduced numbers. And even more so when you look at the National League as well, again, they, they have very reduced stadia capacity, but 
you know that additional revenue that they can get from fans and you know rabbits buying drinks or, or and so on and so forth on the day for them in terms of turnover it's a really significant factor isn't it yeah absolutely and and that brings us really to the question of what are the costs of not allowing fans to return um, and of course, there's a lot of scrutiny and there's pressure on the government to get this right, because back in March, in the early days of, of COVID, that they were under criticism for letting big events go ahead. So at the moment, there's an investigation into allowing Liverpool's Champions League fixture against Atletico Madrid, um, which went ahead in mid-March. Um, and there have been calls for investigation into whether the, the horse racing Cheltenham Festival should have gone ahead again at the same time. But I think it's important to bear in mind that those were events, obviously, which were going ahead um, in accordance with normal protocols. They both had 50,000 to 60,000 spectators per day. And what we're now looking at, as you say, with the pilot events programme, is what are the costs of allowing a fraction of those numbers um, measured against the financial and social cost of not allowing the spectators back in those numbers? And as you say, that the financial cost for clubs is, is really pretty staggering. Uh, it's been estimated that EFL clubs have lost £50 million of gate income in the 1920 season. And the Premier League chief executive, uh, Richard Masters, has come out and predicted that if there are no fans in the stadia for this coming season, that will cost clubs a total of £700 million. Um, Looking then at the impact um, of this on other clubs and bodies, the RFU said that they plan to make 139 staff redundant due to £107 million in lost revenue. Uh, the ECB has announced 62 job losses and has lost £100 million this year. Um, and that's the impact on, on national governing bodies, the Premier League. Um, there's certainly a real fear that smaller clubs and the national league clubs, like you say, simply won't survive without the money from spectators. And I know that yourself and Daniel discussed on the last podcast the, the winding up of Macclesfield Town due to the um, debts that, that they owed. Obviously not entirely <laughs> corona um, related, but there's certainly a real fear that other clubs will be going um, the same way if the situation doesn't improve or change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's also worth, you know, mentioning, as we said, with, with the moving goalposts, there's such frustration at not being able to plan ahead. Um, and indeed, there are probably additional costs as a result of U-turns. So obviously, thinking that they're going to have fans planning for that, planning for the, the policies and measures which have to be put in place, um, as well as just kind of planning in terms of budgetary um, measures for, for what that will bring for them. So there is frustration and, and there are a lot of costs due to the, the changing landscape, um, which is, as I say, changing sort of weekly at the moment. I mean, yeah, it's difficult, difficult enough to have a business in these circumstances, let alone, you know, when you're preparing for one event and it just completely gets pulled from underneath you. Um, yeah, greatest sympathy for, for anyone trying to cope with it all. How is it looking elsewhere? Are England the only ones that are being a bit frustrating in this respect or are there other examples as well yeah no i mean i think it's, it's interesting to see what what's happening with big events um in other countries and um of course the sort of other end of the spectrum is somewhere like new zealand where fans returned in full droves and um, packed stadiums in in june and of course that was after that they'd announced um I mean, the first time that they had totally eradicated coronavirus so perhaps a little unfair to um make a comparison there 
Um, in other countries where there are much similar numbers, really, um, I think that the picture is pretty similar. So, for example, um, in, in the tennis world, US Open tennis went ahead at the beginning of September and that was played with no spectators whatsoever. The entire site was turned into a bubble for players um, as well as essential personnel. And there were very tight restrictions on how many support members of their team they could have, coaches and things like that, um, and family members turn up. Um, and then it remaining on, on tennis theme, the French Open um, was postponed from May. It has just got underway and it will be underway for the next sort of week and a half from, from this point. Um, they had had rather grand plans, I think it's fair to say, to, to have 11,500 fans on the site each day, divided into three areas. And that um, unfortunately was put paid to with a recent um, spike in COVID numbers in France. They have been able to go ahead um, with 1,000 fans a day. Again, the players um, are subjected to quite strict controls. They're um, subjected to regular COVID testing and they're having to stay in one of two official tournament hotels. Um, so I think similar picture, I mean, obviously can't necessarily talk about how, how much things are changing on a sort of daily or weekly basis. But yeah, the, there's kind of difficulties across the board, I think, in, in reaching that balance between having events going ahead and, and having some fans who are able to enjoy it. That's interesting. And I, I suppose, one of the differences though when you look at those big events like the French Open or the US Open much like with the top end of, of football in the Premier League and the Championship as well those sorts of events are still going to be televised so there's mm. some revenue coming in there I think particularly in, in, in tennis you know there's a lot of sponsorship money on, on the table there that comes from the broadcasting of such matches but you know, you, you compare that to amateur sports, they're not in a position to, to have any sort of funding coming from, from those sorts of sources. So how, how are those sort of amateur sports and, and other events being affected? Yeah, so if, I mean, if we move to look at the, the impact perhaps on, on mass participation events, so things like um, London Marathon, um, other activities like that, um, which I think people are also very keen, obviously, to see um, be, be brought back insofar as they want to um, participate in them and I think you know you're right to say that there's a lot of a huge financial cost as well in terms of those events not going ahead both um, a question about whether they'll be able to to fund themselves in future years and there's um, real issues about the kind of revenue that those events bring in for charity um, on a sort of a yearly basis which are really um, relied on by those charities as a as huge um, part of their income stream. Um, so in England, physical activity and participation events have been allowed to resume since the 11th of July. Um, again, we've got this uh, question of what does the rule of six mean for that? So following the, the number four regulations being brought in in, in mid-September, Sport England um, sought clarification from the government about what did that rule of six mean for sport and physical activity and in particular larger scale um, mass participation events. And the response was that organised sports and activities that have been through what's called return to play protocols and organised outdoor sports can continue. So you're right to say that they can't necessarily um, ensure that participants um, are tested or that there are biosecure bubbles and things like that. 
Um, but in terms of the measures that licensed races and events, so looking at things like running events, cycling events, triathlons, um, there are certain measures and protocols that those have to adhere to. So those include carrying out COVID-19 risk assessment, measures which are intended to reduce contact between individuals and enable social distancing. Um, that would include staggered start times, refreshments which are left on tables rather than being handed out by volunteers, water in sealed bottles and not in cups, um, and medals not being handed out to participants at the end of the races. And they're also having to give additional communication with the participants, giving them all of their race day information in advance. So rather than having those kind of um, group meetings at the beginning where the race is, is explained to them and, and any rules, those will be sent out by email in advance. Um, clearly a lot of high profile events have been affected. And, and as I said, one of the biggest is the London Marathon, which of course takes place normally in April every year. And that was postponed from the 26th of April to the 4th of October. So that will be this weekend coming up. And at the time of the original postponement, I think like most of us, the organisers were uh, quite optimistic that by October we'd be looking at a very different picture and that, that would be long enough to enable things to, to go ahead in a way similarly to, to how they would have done in the past. Um, unfortunately, they haven't been able to, to bring off an event with mass participation. And um, I think it's, it's also right to say that initially they had hoped that this kind of technology could be used with mass participants to enable social distancing. So not a bubble per se, but technology that would tell people when they'd been too close to someone else, a bit like a very advanced track and trace system. Um, those, those plans were unfortunately couldn't come to fruition. So we're looking at an elite only men's, women's and wheelchair races, which are being um, conducted in biosecure bubbles. Um, it will be 19 and a half laps of St. James's Park and the participants are all staying in the same hotel outside of London. It's also a sealed off event, so there won't be any spectators, um, but it will be, as you say, <laughs> televised. And um, similarly to, to the change of the French Open from uh, May to October, the changes bring about sort of interesting change as well to the event itself. So all those flat loops of St. James's Park mean that it'll be a very flat course. Um, there's an opportunity for, for records to be smashed. Potentially Kipchoge could come below his um, two hours and one minute. And that's, you know, a, a significant reason, I suppose, of interest for people to, to watch on TV, even though they can't go out and support on the day itself. Mm. Um, that's been one of the sort of weird things about all, I think, all sports that's managed to continue throughout COVID is that, you know, even if there is some form of success for a club, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, winning a, a particular trophy or, or, or breaking potentially a, a world record, it almost has that asterisk next to it saying mm -hmm. during COVID and it shouldn't undermine how, how you know, good an achievement it is. But I, I wonder if some of the athletes are being affected by those sorts of um, thoughts passing through fans' minds at all. Potentially, yeah. I mean, I know that um, this was also a, a comment that's made with Osaka winning the um, Naomi Osaka winning the the tennis, the U.S. Open. Of course, the the last time uh, she she previously won that title was in a, a pretty um, controversial final involving Serena Williams, and um, she sort of said, you know, hopefully one day she'll win the U.S. Open without that kind of asterisk by her name. But I think 
there's also, you know, aside with it's almost in some ways an even greater achievement because obviously none of the players have been able to train in the same way or prepare for competition in the same way as they would have done in other years. Um, and they are having to deal with a lot of sort of unknowns and uncertainty um, and also sort of bringing a lot from within themselves in terms of kind of rising to the occasion when you haven't got those thousands of fans cheering you on. So, yeah, I think there's certainly something to be said in terms of almost an additional achievement um, winning in that way. But yeah, there are obviously certain drawbacks as well to that. Um, in terms of the London Marathon, talking about the mass participation aspect, um, what is pretty remarkable achievement is they've also managed to sell 45,000 virtual places. So they are like all of us adapting to this virtual world um, and participants being encouraged to run their own marathon on the same day. And that's clearly- I've seen that's not sort sorry. of running around your own living room, but like an app that tracks- Yeah, I, I don't so. know. And, and presumably you wouldn't also want to have too many of those people running in the same place. Um, so I suspect they're left somewhat to kind of devise their own courses. But yeah, I think fortunately we're not at present in lockdown. So people aren't being restricted to that sort of laps of your backyard or balcony yeah. or living room or anything like that i think it's um, a really good idea and I, I think even um i think the great north run did the same thing actually a few weeks ago mm. I, I remember running around batsy park and i saw a few people in their great north run gear and yeah I think they released an app whereby you know there'd be like comments from elite athletes as you were running around and trying to sort of replicate the atmosphere of doing the great north run as well so i think it's a good idea and it's, it's a scope for more participation in, in, in those sorts of events in the future if you can't get an actual place at mm. the event as well. Yeah absolutely and you know I think it's obviously it's a, a massive effort um, both to try and maintain that um, participant engagement and, and generally engagement of the wider community but also to to carry on raising those crucial funds which we kind of alluded to because again there is a huge financial impact of these mass events not going ahead uh, there's research which has suggests that the income for charities from the top 25 mass participation events could drop by 100 million pounds in 2020. So, I mean, that is absolutely massive. And if if the organisers can do anything they can to try and make sure that those charities are still supported in some way and at the same time um, keep people's engagement, their physical activity, um, benefits for mental health, you know, all supported, then um, that's obviously only a benefit. <laughs> and I think it's also worth pointing out as in terms of the achievement of, of the London Marathon organisers, that it's also the only world marathon major which is taking place this year. Um, there's been quite a lot of surprise and, and consternation, certainly from New York, that they've managed to get so many people signed up to the virtual race and event. So that is a really huge achievement. Um, and contrasts in some ways, uh, again, on the tennis side with Wimbledon having been the only tennis Grand Slam which actually didn't go ahead this year. So in, in some sense, England's maybe got it right on <laughs> in one respect. Um, but the impact on mass participation events generally has been varied and, and I think may well be also a result of the, the changing landscape and, and the rise in infections um, at present. So the Blenheim Triathlon took place uh, earlier in September of this year. 
um, again, limited um, in various ways. So one spectator per entrant, about half um, event capacity and a longer day. And it was by all accounts, extremely successful. And, and again, I think people were just so pleased to be able to get back out competing in the way that they'd planned to and trained for before this all happened. Um, but that hasn't necessarily translated across the board. And I think that is probably a result also of things just tightening up at the moment. So the Brighton Marathon had been rescheduled to the 11th of October. That's now cancelled. And again, they're having a virtual event instead. Um, and Park Run, which is, I'm sure, you know, a big um, sort of weekly event and certainly something that people participate in maybe once or a couple of times a month, that had been planned to return in England at the end of October. And the organisers are clearly extremely determined to return because of the physical and mental health benefits. Um, and also what parkrun organisers perceive as a limited risk of transmission at outdoor activities. So in a, in a bit of an excerpt from the public statement that they'd put out when they were planning to return at the end of October, um, they had said, we strongly believe that as existing and emerging evidence suggests and contrary to public opinion, there is little to no risk of COVID-19 transmission at outdoor physical activity events such as Parkrun. Increasingly, we are seeing outbreaks traced to indoor work and social environments, yet to date there is little if any evidence of outbreaks directly resulting from participation in outdoor physical activity events. Um, it's fair to say that the Parkrun view on that hasn't changed, but on the 25th of September, they announced that they wouldn't be returning after all at the end of October, and it remains clearly unknown when they will be able to return. Uh, they pointed out that they are exempt from the, the rule of six, but that they feel it's insensitive to push forward with reopening in the current atmosphere. Um, and I think there is a huge amount of frustration of the parkrun organisers and probably the majority of participants linked to those costs of not being able to carry on with the physical social activity. I think we're, we're all aware of the huge mental health costs that the first lockdown brought. And there's certainly a very real fear that going into the winter, isolation and not being able to um, participate in physical activity, especially in a social way, will become even more difficult. Um, so that, that frustration is borne out by, by Parkrun saying it is essential that we look beyond baseless assumptions and the culture of fear and move toward evidence-based interventions. We must act now if we are to avoid irreparable damage to the health and happiness of our communities. So that really, I think, underscores the tension in these areas. And it really is at the moment quite unclear how those will be resolved going forwards. Yeah, it, it seems to be a really delicate balance of, you know, sports bodies and organizers really wanting to get back to their full capacity or, or their normal flow of business but then of course you have to have the very significant factor in mind of trying to keep the virus at bay and doing everything you can to get normality back sooner rather than later rather than having these continual pushbacks from spikes and mm. in infection so um yeah it's really not a a, a good place to be in for them and um, yeah, I, I really hope things get better sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I think, as you say, that the kind of sports bodies trying to come together to persuade the government to, to reach some kind of plan, really, on getting out of, of this sort of impasse and also making sure that they can survive. 
So in the last week or so, the leaders of over 100 sports bodies have written a letter to Boris Johnson warning that the impact of closed stadiums and leisure facilities will lead to what they say is a lost generation of sport and activity. And in that letter, they've asked for an emergency funding package similar to the, I think, £1.57 billion uh, support package, which was given to the arts industry in July, which they've termed as a sports recovery fund um, so that the sector can, can survive and it can stabilise and, and carry on. Well, thanks, Julia. That's really detailed analysis of, you know, of what the guidelines are and, and how they're being received and implemented. And, you know, from, from my perspective, it's great to see that there's been you know, innovation in, in some respects and how some bodies and clubs are rising to the challenge of dealing with these guidelines. But as I say, I, I certainly hope all being well in, in managing COVID, of course, that there's a return to normality sooner rather than later. Uh, particularly for those bodies that you've just touched upon that are struggling um, financially. Uh, but I, I, I feel sure this topic will be up for further discussion uh, as, as things progress. Sure. And I'm sure we'll have some number six and number seven regulations to see us through another podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep you busy, I'm sure. Well, uh, thanks everyone for listening and uh, keep an eye out for further podcasts from Three Hair Court Sports Law Team uh, in the future. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Tom. <laughs>